Welcome to the Discovery Pod, where we talk to leading experts from the University of Adelaide about solutions to society's most pressing challenges. Access to food and water is set to become the next conflict horizon. So how do we secure the future of food and water for all? I'm joined here today by Martin Cole, Professor and internationally recognised food scientist. Mike Young, Professor and Specialist in Water Policy Reform here and across the globe. And Georgina Drew, Senior Lecturer and Expert in the Politics and Ecology of Water Management. Welcome all. Great to be here. Thank you. With increasing population size, static land production areas and climate change, we will see more problems around food and water security. Can we match food supply demands to population increase? How do we avoid food and water conflict issues? And how do we feed a thirsty world? So Martin, let's, let's start with you, your uh, resident food expert here. So with these burgeoning problems that are coming, what's, what's going on to uh, put in place the planning uh, that's required for food security for the globe? Well, Andy, one of the, I mean, one of the, one of the ways I always look at it is, you know, in my, in my lifetime, we've kind of doubled the amount of food available, but that's come at quite a cost to the planet. You know, we've, in that time, we've increased the amount of food, uh, area of food production. We've increased, you know, the amount of nitrogen by seven times and of phosphorus by three times and about twice the amount of irrigation water that we've used. This time round, we've got to uh, kind of do that again, but this time we've got to halve the environmental footprint if we're going to have a planet to be uh, livable. You know? So we've got to double food production again, but halve the inputs, basically. Yeah. So how are we going to do that? So, and, and, well, <laughs> no I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is, you know, where is the leadership for this going to come? Uh, in this particular uh, social and economic uh, environment that we're in, political environment, so one of, I mean, one of the groups I'm involved with is uh, that provides advice and, you know, uh, science and evidence advice to the UN uh, Food Security Committee. So this is kind of a central group that really tries to play the international connectiveness in terms of the policy advice that we give. Um, that's then converted through the policy framework through international governments. And uh, so one of the things we're looking at is how do you how do you do that then? You know, I mean, the, these issues have no no borders, so really there is a need for an international. Really, is a need for a UN and an international initiative around these issues. And you know, we're, we're at a time now where uh, politics and international politics is kind of an unknown arena. We're not seeing huge levels of cooperation <laughs> in in some sectors. So, uh, what, what's the hope for getting that kind of yeah, global plan together? Yeah, so, indeed. I mean, well, one of the things we've just been looking at. One of the things the UN asked us to do was to actually do a taking stock report, a, a global narrative on food security. Where, where are we? You know, 10 years since the last food crisis and 10 years out from the sustainable development goals. And how, how are we tracking? Are we on track to meet that? And uh, it's pretty sobering because we're nowhere near on track to do that. Um, I think on the positive side, you know, the science and technology and innovation possibilities are all there. I think we yeah. you know, we look at the, the, the problems we've solved in the past, but uh, it really does need uh, not only kind of a, a transdisciplinary approach, it needs a cross-sectoral approach, it needs a whole new way of looking at the food, you know, looking at food as a food system globally. 
So, so we're understanding, and we've got a good understanding now of the size of the problem and the, the, the challenges that are faced. But what, what are some of the, the practical uh, solutions that are being trialled to actually solve these problems? Well, we've got, there, there are four main kind of policy uh, areas that we're looking at. One is that we've got to stop just having a focus on producing more food, produce more food, produce more food. When, you know, we, we waste about a third of the food that we produce. So we've really got to have... We've got to move from a focus just on agronomy to a whole of food systems approach. You'll hear from Mike and Georgina about the importance of water. It's pretty tough to produce food without looking at the water supply as well. So we've really got to look at the whole systems approach. We've got to be looking at not just the issue of hunger. We've got to be looking at malnutrition in all of its forms. We've got to, you know, we've got, the irony is that we've got, you know, uh, 600 and, 90 million people starving around the world, and yet we've got an obesity epidemic. You know, we've really got to, to look at uh, the broader context of things. Yeah. So there's a, an une uneven distribution of food. If we solved some of those food distribution and food waste issues, we'd already have more than enough food to feed the world and the population increase for probably the next five years. Look, I, th I think the current, I mean, it's, it's pretty tough to have one of these discussions without talking about uh, COVID-19 and the global pandemic. Um, even before COVID-19, we, we had serious issues to resolve. Clearly now, what it's done, it's really shown up uh, in inequalities, uh, particularly vulnerable uh, populations are, are particularly at risk to food insecurity. And, but what, it, what it's done is it's actually, you know, if you look at food stocks globally, they're actually about twice the level they were when we had the last food crisis. But it's it's a... So it's not uh, an, uh, an, uh, you know, an availability of food, it's an access issue. It's actually getting access to that food and it is a distribution of the food, uh, particularly where there's inequalities and vulnerabilities, yeah. And are we see, seeing that start to adapt and ease now that people are getting used to COVID? And, uh, these Look, things? I think we, you know, the, the, the policy, you know, the policy advice we've been given is, is, you know, really around, you know, social protection. You know, you think about really what's happened around the world as the, pandemic has gone around the world, starting in countries which had a very developed food supply chain and a you know, very sophisticated health service. We're now in, in regions of the world, you look at India, Brazil, uh, Africa, parts of the world that were already, already might be on the edge in terms of food security. So th these regions now, we're really starting, so we've lost a lot of the food the school food programs, you know, the school meal programs. So that's a. So we've been given a lot of advice on social protection mechanisms. Uh, some of that has had a positive impact, but I think the big unknown is the you know, global recession. I mean, we really still don't know whether we've you know reached the bottom of that and and what the longevity of that will be until we get a vaccine. So that's really whenever there's a economic downturn, that's when. You know the inequalities of food availability and access really come to the to the front. You know. And do we see economies returning back to food production at times of recession? Is that a well, natural? You're, you're that seeing. I mean, you know, it'd be good to hear from Georgina about local production. So we are seeing, I think, the emphasis more. You know, look at some of the. There's been a lot of disruption to local markets. You know, particularly in fresh produce and things like that. But I think you're seeing now, uh, it's a bit of a wake-up call. Even, you know, countries like Australia, we're one of the most food-secure countries, obviously, in the world. But I think even for us, it's been a wake-up call. We still rely on a lot of ingredients, a lot of packaging uh, coming in from overseas. So I think it really is a bit of a wake-up call 
to try and build some resilience into uh, your own food supply. And that can mean really encouraging local production, local systems of food production to really maximize uh, and minim minimize waste and maximize the value yeah. from that. Yeah, so, so there can be some good things that are uh, potentially coming from this. Mm. And uh, of course, we need water to grow the crops. So, uh, Mike, I might move the conversation to you around the water security issues. You obviously have worked uh, quite a lot around uh, water dependence systems, both here in Australia uh, and internationally. Um, what, what are some of the, the frontiers uh, and, and the issues really around water security that we're currently facing? I think the first one is what does water security mean? and particularly where there is water scarcity, whether or not you manufacture water by taking it essentially, taking fossil fuel and converting the energy and using that to convert seawater. If you don't do that, that's very expensive. It's affordable just at the moment for urban use, but it doesn't pay for agriculture. It's cheaper to just grow the food where the water exists, and that takes you into water scarcity, as it's often called, and when you have water security, you have a system that manages conflicts and tensions between demand and supply continuously and very well. And the ultimate bottom line to that is you need a sharing system. It's very basic. If somebody wants more water and there's scarcity, someone has to agree to take less. And it's as simple as that. The problem is all the political arguments, everybody wants someone else to give it up while they take more. Finding a governance system that works is the biggest challenge of all. So it's a classic tragedy of the commons uh, problem for this. So are there any models that do actually work for water sharing? Um, yes. They work brilliantly in small systems. Game theory, uh, computer game, labs. Game <laughs> theory. In fact, one of the most robust systems comes out of the Middle East. And it's very like <laughs> the sort of the Australian framework now, but it's 3,000 years old. Yeah. And it was done where they So the Australian framework was modelled on this, was it? Um, well, in fact, it was, yeah, yeah. fascinatingly, because this is a longer story, but very <laughs> quickly it started in the Middle East, went through across the top of Africa to Spain. The Spaniards took it to America. The man who, who, who became one of Australia's first prime ministers went to America to find out how to manage water so we could grow, grow a, actually start an irrigation industry, was horrified what he saw in America, went down to Mexico and brought the Mexican system back to Australia. And that was the bones of how we started our irrigation mm. story. But that's actually 3,000-year-old technology that says communities have to manage community by community. And people are very good. I don't have any trouble sharing with my family. Mm. When the family gets bigger and it becomes a small town, still no problem. When you don't get to meet the people, then it becomes much harder to design it. But that's, the guts of it is to have a sharing system and then to have a very robust accounting system so that you track and sort out how you adjust. And with, with, with climatic change and some of those issues, we're seeing more drought problems as well. Uh, are, are some of these systems robust to these increasing climatic challenges? But they can be designed so they're robust in dealing with that, and the best ones are. Um, it's a fascinating process. When I look at the sort of changes, the ones that Martin's talking about, and where we will go as we go into local areas, the rates of change are actually not so much climate as the problem. It's changing demands. When somebody gets wealthier, they want more water. When populations grow, they want more water. There's a massive rural-urban migration 
process going on globally and when people leave a rural area and go to an urban area, they want to somehow take the water with them. But there's a paradox in this, <laughs> which is crazy. Yeah. Water is actually the cheapest thing in the world. If you want to buy a truckload of water, the charge for using it's only a few dollars. It's cheaper than sand, <laughs> but it's so valuable. And there's, you know, if you're on an island, it's, they talk about the diamond paradox. If you're offered on, a, on an island a choice between a bucket of water and a bucket of diamonds, you take the water. So, I mean, are we at the point here in Australia where we need to be thinking about the crops that we're growing and the water use efficiency? So we understand that uh, rice and cotton are quite water hungry uh, in terms of the, the, those products. Um, so are those sensible to grow here in Australia? Should we be growing different crops and a, a more stringent consideration of the water use efficiency of those? Um, it's quite a political topic. No, maybe. no, it's, it's actually very simple. <laughs> I always say to our, uh, to the Australian people who grow oranges, grapes, um, whatever, permanent crops, almonds, whatever they are, the first thing they should do is thank the dairy industry and thank the rice industry and thank the cotton industry. Because when there's a, a dryish period, you need an annual crop that you can switch off. You cannot switch off an orange tree and say, whoa, stop we're out of water, but you can decide not to grow a rice crop, you can decide not to grow, grow um, some cotton, and you can des decide to dry out your cows. So you need to have a hot and cold tap, you need to have a system that's adjusted. So you need inefficient use, in a technical sense, and efficient use, because the inefficient stuff is the stuff you use opportunistically when it's available, when it's not available you do something else. Yeah. And globally, hopefully, it averages out. And people talk about trading in what's called virtual water, but in each um, kilo of food or kilo of cotton, whatever it is, there's a lot of water embodied in that. Thanks. And so let, let's move over to you, Georgina, as well, around some of the, the, the solutions and the local solutions, I think, for, for water uh, and rainwater harvesting. Yeah. So, um, you know, we can take water out of rivers, uh, take it out of uh, groundwater. But what are some of the other options for more local uh, water harvesting? Definitely. Well, I'll just preface by saying that um, one of my main interests is thinking about uh, water resilient futures, particularly in urban areas of South Asia. But increasingly, I'm also trying to um, give my attention here in Australia as well. Um, there's a huge potential in thinking small. Most governments, I'll speak for a minute um, about South Asia, India, and Nepal, the areas that I know best based on my research, but we could try to apply it to, to Australia and to Adelaide or South Australia as well. Um, but there's, there's been an issue in India for quite a long time, for example, and it's, it's also an issue in Nepal, around thinking big. So in post-independence India, post-Nehruvian India, they wanted to build big dams for big, large-scale water transfers from... Um, hill regions or the Himalayas down into the big cities. That was fine while there was enough water to go around, but now there's about 1.3, 1.4 billion people in India, and there's huge demands on water for agriculture, and there's rural demands and Himalayan eco ecosystem demands on water. So it's a very limited system, and you have groundwater uh, levels plummeting all over urban India. Um, so the backup water supply when the taps aren't flowing, which is usually only about four hours a day in most urban cores, that's all drying out. So the tap water is running out, the groundwater is running out, what do you do? Well, a lot of governments across India and even the federal government has been trying to promote urban rainwater harvesting or just rainwater harvesting across the board for quite some time. 
It's run into a number of challenges, but in my research on the ground doing ethnographies of um, water management in India and Nepal, what I've seen is that um, you have a very strong um, potential for uptake at the household level um, and at the, um, let's say, hospital, hotel, kind of the commercial, small-scale commercial level um, that has so far not been tapped into because a lot of people need um, that initial support and investment to get things up and running. So there are various different efforts and policies at subsidizing this so that people will um, take the bait and build the infrastructures. However, one big problem is that once they're built, they do require quite a lot of maintenance. Um, the monsoons are, are quite heavy and voracious when they fall in South Asia, and um, oftentimes that leads to a lot of disrepair in, in, in the infrastructures. Right. So you do end up with a problem where it's a, it's a viable, wonderful solution, but oftentimes they only actually operate for one to five years, and then they fall into disrepair. So then you have to look at how can you incentivize people not just to build things, but to maintain them. Um, you also have to look at how centralized governments could step in and do more of their part in um, building centralized rainwater harvesting infrastructures. And just to preface the potential for that, New Delhi has about the same rainfall as Adelaide does, the metropolitan area, about 600 millimeters per year. And at the turn of the 21st century, it was calculated by the Center for Science and Environment that if the entire uh, area of Delhi captured every drop that fell on the ground, it could service the 12 million population at the time. Um, now it's about double that. But it's a huge potential mm, to mm. capture all that rain and use it. So it can't just be all decentralized. It has to be decentralized and centralized. But the solution is there if there's enough political will and if there's enough social uptake, um, social and cultural uptake of that. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And of course, you know, Damon Gamow's film, 2040, talked about some of these local solutions I as just well. watched that, yes. Yeah, yes. so uh, particularly with, with solar power and, uh, you know, incentivizing and providing subsidies for mm -hmm. solar panels that then could be linked together as a network for small isolated uh, villages that yeah. then be basically become off-grid. So this, this, and the, the water, yeah. it struck me that when you were talking about that water harvesting, it's a very similar kind of model. I'm so glad you mentioned that because this overlaps with Mike's comment around, around water sharing. So that was one of the insights about what he was looking at that was new to me is that yes, we know that solar um, power is a solution for households, but that there's a surplus issue. Sometimes you've got more, more energy than, than you know what to do with and it's get waste, it gets wasted, um, but you can actually create grids um, that share the solar power and those, those grids collectively can do more than a centralized grid can do. Um, I think it's pretty similar with rainwater harvesting, particular in, particularly in areas where you have lots of rainfall in short periods. So the monsoon maybe lasts 90 days if you're lucky. So um, for the people that do do rainwater harvesting, it's almost too much water for them at one time, and that also becomes a disincentive. But if they could profit from it, if they could cover their annual maintenance costs by selling some of that water when it's in surplus, then already you've got a bit of the solution figured out there. So how do you trade and move that water when uh, everywhere in the neighborhood has an excess of water? That's the problem, isn't it? So the monsoon comes into a location, mm. you get a big dump of uh, rain, everybody has excess water, but 100 kilometers away or 200 kilometers away, mm -hmm. then that might be the potential market there. That's but, true. Yeah, but yeah. It, it's the movement of the water that's the issue. It is. It so, is Mike, how do we move? How do we move water? Those kind of distances efficiently. Well, actually, you let the water flow downhill. That's not oh, hard. Okay. The, the, the physical side's <laughs> okay. easy. Okay. It's, it's actually yeah. try, trying to work out whether you need to pay the people yeah. to leave the water in, and it all gets tangled up in money. And and how do you do that? And there's, there's essentially two models in the world that work. 
One is every year the government takes some water away from everybody and reallocates it. That's very hard because politics gets involved. Or the other is to set up some market-like frameworks, which the world still is experimenting with. Australia was doing very well in it. We, um, as we developed it, we just started using more and more water and we keep on strike, striking problems at the margin. Hmm. But it's conceptually possible to design the incentive structures to do that. Underneath all of this is something they mentioned earlier, which I think is the hardest debate that everybody has, and that's how do you use subsidies and where does government spend its money? And the world is littered in the area of water with systems where governments have gone in and offered to pay and support and subsidise water use and access to water infrastructure. And then government's priorities change. So, and the horrible thing that happens in a lot of the big city-wide systems is that you can get away with not maintaining a system for a while because you just that the infrastructure gets older and older. And then suddenly you're left with this massive bill, 70% of the water which is, is being used is non-revenue water, it's leaking everywhere, people are stealing it all over the place. And getting it back into a tight management system is a very, very difficult process. Mm. You go into India, you find that with all this groundwater depletion, one of the big drivers of that has been poor people demanding to have access to water. And as it goes down, they insist on having free electricity so they can chase the water down and keep on depleting the resource rather than forcing the structural adjustment and change. And the hardest part, which we have in Australia as well, is when you start talking about trading water. How do you keep populations aligned with the available water and making sure that water goes to produce the most food? As Martin says, you need the most food. And if you start using water in places where it's not making the greatest contribution it can, then we get compromises and they're environmental compromises, they're food compromises and they're economic compromises. Getting that right is really where the world's at. We've gone from the hard solution, building pipes and dams, to talking about the soft solutions, the institutional arrangements of how do we build social structures that work no matter what happens. Yeah. I guess this also comes back to the local uh, harvesting by households, but also then uh, local government investment within uh, storage facilities for water as well. So it's got to be a mixed, a mixed balance between those to, to solve this problem. This is a big debate we're now having in Australia in the Darling. When you have lots of local harvesting and capture, remember that water used to go somewhere. Mm. Mm -hmm. And in many of the places where there's a shortage and where people are being told to harvest water, it's not right at the sea, it's inland. And that water was being used by somebody else. And this gets back to the whole issues of sharing. And the or Darling River in Australia ran out of yeah, water yeah. because of upstream yeah. essentially capturing a runoff mm. and using it locally when people downstream had got used to having it to maintain their ecosystems. Hmm. And that's real water scarcity. Hmm. Georgina, I also wanted to just touch on some of the other issues, which I think then uh, reflects back to uh, Mike and Martin's comments around is, you know, how, how do you get the change? How do you, 
How do you motivate? So you've got a, a good solution. Um, how do you then motivate people or communities or local governments to invest in that and make the change? So often we, we you know, yeah. we can, as, uh, as researchers and scientists, we develop the solutions mm -hmm. and then, you know, of course you're going to adopt that, but the adoption side and understanding the culture uh, of that adoption is a, is a critical component to getting that. I love this question. Thank you for asking it. Um, so what I have seen in my research is that there's, I mentioned it earlier, but there's a need for a mindset change, which is really a cultural shift that needs to happen. And it harkens back to some of the history that I was mentioning, but I'll just give the example of New Delhi, for instance. Um, when the British set up their capital in New Delhi at the turn of the 21st century, one of the first things that they did is they decided to pave over a lot of the local water structures um, that captured water and that serviced people within the city. They did have inner um, basin water transfers for the water they drank, but they had other locally so sourced waters. And that, that continued, that mindset con continued that um, to capture water and to store it locally is a, is a misuse of space, it's unhygienic, um, it might attract mosquitoes, which might have malaria or dengue, which are real problems in South Asia. Um, but the, the legacy of that is that when a politician needs to get elected and make promises, that politician is most often nowadays going to make a big promise. They're going to, they're going to say that they're going to make a new dam with another long transfer from the high Himalayas down into an urban core. Um, and voters are, are opting into that, but there needs to be a, we can know those promises are, are going to start to be hollow pretty soon. Uh, we're running out of rivers to tap, we're, the, the Himalayan glaciers are melting. So um, the politicians, I believe, now have responsibility. Municipalities have to walk the talk that they have out, laid out in so many of their policy documents um, that they need to say, look, I'd love to promise you another big water transfer, but I can't. Instead, I need to promise you that we will um, harness stormwater and channel stormwater and, um, and filter that and use that for our urban core. We're going to put rainwater harvesting on all our municipal buildings. In New Delhi, for instance, the municipality is the largest landholder out of everyone that lives in New Delhi. And they've done rainwater harvesting on uh, just a few exemplar buildings. So there's a missed opportunity there. And I think if, if you have policy um, and po politicians really leading with that rhetoric, you can also help people start to change their mindset in valuing those smaller initiatives and seeing that they have a real immediate impact on them and that they're resilient and sustainable into the future. Because people are witnessing that their, their water infrastructures are failing. There's a huge amount of tr water loss in the transmission from the Himalayas into the, the main pipes in Delhi. And then within New Delhi, there's about another 40% of water that's lost. So it's completely inefficient, but thinking local is um, at least more efficient. It comes with different problems, but it's more efficient. And, and the water's free. Mike was talking about you know, water being cheap. Well, rainwater harvesting, as long as you're, you're not counting the infrastructure, which once you build it, you just have to clean it and maintain it, it's the freest, cheapest thing that you could mm -hmm. possibly imagine, capturing rain. And so, and so the motivation then comes from uh, the value for that, but also you know people together being part of the solution that they see exactly. is a real problem for their societies. Uh -huh. yeah. And if I could just one, mention one more thing on that, is that um, I've been completely heartened and um, just taken a lot of comfort in the fact that the people who do end up taking that investment and managing rainwater that they collect and then use, they have so much pride in their infrastructure. Um, they have such a feeling of stewardship and responsibility as being, you know, both, both towards their family, um, towards the, as urban water stewards, they have that sense, and then towards the ecology as well. They feel like they're, they're walking the talk, they're being good environmentalists, and they're making a difference. And they can see it every day. Yeah. And just the, the joy of a smile of someone who's taking a sip from a glass of water that they have, they have caught on their roof, 
and stored on the ground and then filtered in their kitchen and then they're drinking it in. I've, I've had the pleasure of drinking um, harvested water all over from the south of India all up to um, Kathmandu, Nepal, and it's beautiful. So it's like eating your homegrown vegetables it's, or uh, your homebrew, uh, those sense. kind of things. It's that same going yeah. to the farmer's market, except for <laughs> yeah. you, you did the whole thing from you start to finish. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wondered if I could just change uh, tack a little bit. And um, um, so for new students uh, that uh, will be coming into the university, uh, what, what are the kind of key challenges uh, that they would end up working on that are kind of the frontier challenges of today? Martin, I wondered if uh, you wanted to have a go at that from the, the food perspective. Well, so what are the, the real horizons yeah. of where yeah. we're, we're pushing uh, this area into? Well, you know, I think you raise a really, a really good point. I mean, we, you know, if you, um, if you advertise, I think if you just advertise an agricultural degree, that's one thing. But if you, if you position that around, you know, solving some of these planetary boundary issues and things like that, I think there's, you get a lot more interest. And for sure, I think we've got to, we've got to actually design the educational offerings in terms of what's the next cadre of leadership we want. Certainly they're going to have to be able to work in a, you know, across a multidisciplinary team. They're going to have to understand and resolve a scenario and a problem and then bring to bear whatever they need in that space to, to solve the thing. So I think from an educational offering standpoint, we've really got to be thinking about, you know, how do we, how do we, uh, make these, how do we position our education offering so that we are making the next uh, generation, I mean it's going to be their, you know, it's going to be their planet they're saving. Yeah. You know, this is why there's so much They passion. should be motivated. Yeah, I mean there's some, so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic, there's some yeah. fantastic stuff going in, in the youth, you know, our, our latest thing we're working on is how do you get youth engaged back into agriculture, you know, I mean, the average age of the farmer Median age in, in Australia is 56, and it's going up. So as how well, do, how yeah. do we get you know how do we get the next generation interested in digital agriculture, some of the science and the technology and the innovation, and this aspect? I mean, I think Georgina, what you're you know what we've just introduced into that new new framework with the UN is this aspect of agency. So this is you know folks, communities, yourself taking your own power and your own interest and your own control over things. And that's kind of the spirit we want to try and engage. So great question. Yep. So if you come to the University of Adelaide, you will seize the power for the future and solve global challenges. Yep. There we yep. go. I, just on that, I think there's one really big thing that's happened I've really noticed in my career. When I started off my career too long ago, everybody talked about agriculture. Now we talk about food, of which yeah. agriculture is a part, but it's a lot more than farming. And places like actually the Centre for actually Global Food and Resources in the University does a lot of that. The second really big thing is how do you deal with change? And one of the things we now do is we teach people to imagine a changing world and how do you facilitate change and expedite it? Because it's by changing that we make progress. And when I started, I was taught in statics, now everything's dynamic. Yeah, so it's that flexibility and resilience that holds the key. Yeah. Listen, it's been a great conversation. So Georgina, Mike and Martin, thanks very much for being on The Discovery Pod. Thank you. Thank thanks for listening to The Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. Join us next time when we discuss music and technology.